Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Digital Grocer, Season 4, Episode 4, which I think is actually maybe overall the 40th episode, which is amazing. I'm your host, Sylvain Perrier, President and CEO of Mercatus Technologies, and connected with me somewhere in the eastern part of Toronto is Mark Fairhurst, our VP of Marketing. Mark, thank you for joining me. Yeah, pleasure. Sylvain, you don't look a day over 39. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. If you, as long as you keep me under forty, I'm happy. <laughs> That's amazing. But you, you know, we're doing something uh, very different today. Normally, we do video, um, and we decided uh, to just to kind of keep it to voice this time around. Keep it light. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more piratish, like pirate radio. Mm -hmm. I like to keep my office here a little bit darker than normal, and <laughs> I'm just it's just me recording uh, audio. Uh, and it's, I kind of like it like this. It just reminds me when we first started, uh, episode one, when we were recording at our office downtown. Yeah, we're back. We're doing it old school. We're, we're, we are doing it old school, which is, uh, which, which is a great movie, by the way, which it is. Um, but you're not going streaking. No, no, no. Wow. I know, maybe episode 41. Maybe, maybe when we hit the 50th episode, how about that? There we go. There you go. Okay, great. So, hey, listen, there's a lot of stuff happening in, in industry right now. Um, the one thing that kind of hit like a bombshell, and I, but I think it's still a little bit underneath the radar. Not a lot of the mm -hmm. trades are picking it up. It's actually Amazon's uh, new shopper panel uh, application on the iPhone. And Mark, I, I, can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, apparently um, Amazon's launching what they're calling their Amazon shopper panel. And uh, they're going to be asking users to send in 10 receipts per month for any purchases made at non-Amazon retailers. And this includes grocery stores, department stores, drug stores, and entertainment outlets. Um, things like uh, movie theaters, theme parks, restaurants. Yeah, so it's, it, is, it is a play for all, all, yeah. all consumables, uh, tra uh, transaction log data. Absolutely. It is... Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you shared with this with me yesterday, because I hadn't come across it, but I, I don't. I mean, I should be reading TechCrunch on a, on a daily basis. I know you are like religious about it, and you have all all the um, the media outlets and the trades that you read mm -hmm. quite regularly to keep us on top of this stuff. And I was kind of really astonished because this was a play that was done by a small Canadian company. Yep. Um, I can't remember the the name of the gentleman that started it, but his father was an investor. I believe his father was the CEO of um the ontario Lot lottery commission mm -hmm. and it did quite well basically what they did is you would take a picture of your receipt your grocery receipt they would upload the data and then they would automatically apply discounts from coupon providers from the cpgs and then you would get a check yeah which yep. i think is a great idea so it's 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 a fundamentally it's a way to to solicit t-log data yeah, and it's, it appears, though, as Amazon is um, actually paying cash money for this. $10 reward applied to wow. uh, their Amazon balance. Well, or, 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 or they'll provide a, a charitable donation in your name. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. The, yeah. other, the other big news this week, Google and an antitrust suit with the U.S. government. Are you surprised, Mark? No, not surprised. Um, I think you and I chatted about this. It's, I mean, following up from the congressional hearings, it's, they had to pick one target because I, I don't think they have the, 
the, you know, the, the resources to go after all three at once, Facebook and uh, Amazon. But I think this is going to take a long time. I think what, what did Microsoft's case take? 10 years? Oh, wow. I think Microsoft was filed in 98. Yeah. And yeah. then at least at least ten years, but the 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 amount of evidence that they had, you know, at the time, I think you would agree, um, Microsoft Windows was and was the I think still is today is the dominant operating system. And you just you it shipped with Internet Explorer. It was you couldn't remove it in Explorer. It was the default. Yeah, you at the time you could install Netscape. Um, but it was a little bit more pervasive to do that. And there was the whole, the whole, you know, this, this also kind of spilt into Microsoft office and the issues with Corel and Corel that had bought WordPerfect from Novell. I mean, there was tons of issues around that. You, yeah. This, you, this is a little more, I think um, a little more challenging because Google provides a lot of services at no charge right. Right, for consumers. Right. So it's, it's going to be a, a more difficult case to prove. But definitely the the lock they have on the search market, that's 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 pervasive. Yeah, it's this will spill over into the likes of Apple and so on because yep. let's not forget, Apple gets a pretty hefty check from Google on an annual basis because Safari is defaulting to Google. Yep. Yeah, you can change it. It's ten billion, ten ten billion dollars a year they get. Well, that's just that's right. That's amazing. Yeah. Right, so it's an astronomical. It's it's some company's entire uh, annual revenue. Mm, yeah. Well, so we're. I'm going to keep an eye on that for you guys and report back. The other big news that actually came out this morning: Whole Foods launched free one hour grocery pickup. And oh, it, I didn't see that. Yeah. So that came out this morning. So you have to spend a minimum of $35 and get this. If you, if you spend $4 and 99 cents, um, you can do it in 30 minutes. And part of me, oh, wow. and part of me, like who needs their groceries in an hour? Like I, I just, I can't wrap my head around that, that concept. I mean, we don't see it in our data uh, for the retailers that we have in the Mercatus stable that are doing uh, what we call uh, just in time. And I do, I'm doing air quotes here because it's not necessarily true just in time. Um, I'm wondering if this is a way for Amazon to start putting pressure on other retailers to see, you know, and specifically Walmart, uh, and specifically some of the other bigger ones, maybe Kroger, to see what's going to kind of happen with that. Yeah, it, it certainly seems like it's an arm race and uh, last mile delivery or pickup. Yeah, yeah. This will be interesting to see how the industry reacts to this one. Um, I want to do a quick follow-up. So on our last episode, on episode three, we talked about Ocado and the uh, IP infringement lawsuit that was um, came that was submitted against them from Auto Store. Right. And, you know, right. we, we kind of got into the conversation of, you know, I called it my IP uh, infringement 101 class. And you know, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with someone raises an, an infringement matter against you? And especially if you if you don't have some form of letter of opinion, uh, where a law firm has researched and you know interviewed the inventors and have said, here's here's how um, you can use this letter to to defend against. So big move last week, right? So Ocado has decided to purchase Mermex. Yeah, I think they bought an interest. I don't know if it's a controlling interest, but definitely it's it's enough to get a hold of their. Uh, their technology. Yeah. And their, and their technology is very much, um, 
it's specialized in what we call what is called the industry. I think the industry has has coined this term, and it's not a familiar one to me. It's called CPS, which is essentially it's technology that enables click and collect. So automated robots that are installed behind a store or in a store, and they are along with along with humans because you just can't remove humans from the equation, quite frankly. And these robots are going around. And they are bringing bins and so on, and a human is picking out of the bins and preparing the order. Yeah. And then these orders, this robot brings this bin to a kiosk, and an individual, a shopper on the other side, types in a code. There's this, this really cool door that opens. It's almost like Star Trek, right? Mm-hmm. The door opens, and and the bins come up, and then you just pull pull your bags out. I think the point I want to make is, and John Springer wrote about this. Uh, on an article for Winsight Media, and I, I I know John, I've known him for years. Great John, writer. John, John, John's been getting a lot of scoops lately. John is the master of scooping stories now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. even I'm jealous, quite frankly. Yeah. Uh, and he, you know, his an article. He said, I don't think the industry necessarily understands why Okado may have bought them outright or a an interest in them. When you are faced with a lawsuit. Um, an IP infringement lawsuit, you know, a very I, public, a very public one, an extremely public one. Who, who, by the way, we pre- you predicted that maybe AutoStore wants to be acquired, and then suddenly, I guess the day we posted our last episode, people were writing about what you said, uh, which I found very interesting. So when I look at this potential deal here, or this deal that has occurred, the way that you defend yourself. Obviously, is you go through the inval- you can go through the invalidation process, but that invalidation process is very much the same process as going through a formal prosecution. It takes it takes years. You have to convince an examiner at the patent office in whether it's in uh, in the UK, one for the EU, then one for the US, one for Canada, because you have to go through the jurisdictions or or you. Or if you could do it in the U.S., then maybe an invalidating the U.S. it may spill into the other jurisdictions because the other jurisdictions do look in, in, in to the U.S. Um, for primary opinion. So the other defense tactic you can take is if you think you're infringing. Now I'm not saying that Okado's infringing. I haven't seen the case. Uh, I've requested it from our law firm because I want to read it because I'm just interested. Um, if you think you're infringing. Again, I'm not saying they are. You could prepare yourself and a defense strategy where is you've bought a series of patents where you may be considering replacing the technology or countersuing. So there's so many things that are doing here. Or quite frankly, Okado may be just doing this for for the sake of saying, hey, by the way, um, we're expanding out of the um, what they call their CFC, their customer fulfillment center, which you know they're large. I mean, this one Sobeys built was over three hundred ninety-six thousand square feet here in Canada. Yeah, big, big facility. In yeah. a facility, it's a massive facility. You got three more on on the books to build, and it, the one in Montreal apparently is almost ready. They may yeah. be just investing, saying, "Okay, I think we need to have a defense strategy against the MFCs." Yeah, and and you know, there's um, there was an article this morning. I read it just before the show. Again, John Springer saying the investment in Mermex is is not related to 
the automated pickup. It, it, it's some super secret new product line. I think a lot of it's PR, but it's to deflect from the, uh, the auto store case or suit and perceive Okado as a intellectual and uh, IP leader, but right. Right. It's, it, it'll play out. It'll play out. Well, so Okado's flexing, which I think, which I think is yep. great in the end. I mean, the only people that win out of this stuff is the retailers, quite frankly. I mean, more choice that you have in the space, and you know, quite frankly, the better you're off in terms of building out your ecosystem. Your ecosystem. The other big thing, and we don't, you know, this is we don't talk about social social technology or, or social networks uh, within the context of our show. But the one thing that I was really astonished um, was Quibi. Yep. And I may not be pronouncing that right, and that's okay. So they raised over 1.5 billion, and yep. co-founded by Jeffrey Katzenberg from DreamWorks and Meg uh, Meg Whitman. Yep. And they decided to shutter and get this. This is very rare. You hear about this in the industry. They actually returned uh, 315 million U.S. dollars back to the investors. Yeah. Amazing. And did you ever use it, Mark? No, no, I'm not in the uh, target demographic. No, you're not. Neither am I. So I was just, I figured maybe you would know because you had daughters and maybe they would talk about it. But we know that they did shop it around. My my daughters don't talk to me about their social platforms. They They just want me to, what I don't know won't hurt them. Well, you know, there are certain things parents shouldn't know, quite frankly. Yeah. I think it's better that way. In any case, one of the things that you and I are seeing happening in grocery right now um, you know, specifically, I don't think this is specifically due to the pandemic, but we're seeing a lot of change. We're seeing executives retire, coming out of grocery, uh, coming out of the other verticals in this space. We're also seeing, uh, unfortunately, some small regional retailers shutter. Mm-hmm. Um, we have companies that are accelerating IPOs. I mean, that was announced uh, Southeastern, right? Is it going mm-hmm. to be accelerating their IPO? And, you know, they talk about the things that they've done, the rebranding, their loyalty program, and so on, which which I think is great. But we're also seeing coming into the space, surprisingly enough, a lot of retailers from the other verticals, apparel, home improvement, coming into grocery and starting to bring that knowledge that they we, they would see and and making this really positive impact and it's kind of creating this flood of thinking and ideas that we haven't seen in 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 a, in a certain while and one of those such uh, individuals is Dave Abbott the CMO at Brookshire's and guess what we have him as a, as a special guest on our show today and Dave welcome to Digital Grocer Thank you very much for having me today. Glad to be here. Fantastic. Now, prior to joining Brookshire's, you were the vice president of integrated media at Home Depot. Really different line of business, mm-hmm. completely, you know, compared to grocery. So how are you applying your knowledge from that space to grocery? Well, I think um, obviously it's a different vertical and there are a lot of differences between the businesses, but uh one of the things about the Home Depot during my nine plus years there, it's still everything revolved around the store. You know, even as big as the e-commerce business became at the Home Depot, when my last full year there was approaching $10 billion, 
it was still less than 10% of sales in the total operation, if you will, here in the States. So, you know, it, when I first went there, my thought was, well, customers don't need to go in and look and feel and try on stuff. Like I spent some time in department store world, apparel, that sort of thing. But you know what? Customers want to touch and feel the lighting, you know, the light fixture they're going to put in the living room that they'll probably have for a few years. So it's interesting during my entire time there, the e-commerce business grew, but what really was the benefit to the growth of that business was the impact it had on the, on the store. And even today after COVID, you know, I still have a lot of friends and colleagues there. I left about a little bit over a year ago. Um, it's that dynamic still exists. They, when COVID hit, there's a big spike in traffic, web traffic and sales and that sort of thing, but it's still very much revolves around the stores. And um, that's true of grocery too. And uh, when I joined the Home Depot back in 2010, the company only really decided to get behind digital a year or two before that. You know, it, the stereotype was, well, why do we have to invest in a world-class e-commerce operation, a website, because customers don't buy shingles online or paint online, that sort of thing, and, and which is true. Even today is true. Uh, the difference is, is that they sure will do research online and they will make a decision whether they're going to go to the Home Depot or some other home improvement retailer based off the information they're able to obtain about their local store on the website. So everything we did we did have a separate e-commerce operation, but I also had a data line reporting relationship to the chief marketing officer there because the chief marketing officer, that she, he or she, depending on what year it was, owned the marketing budget. And I, one of my first job there was the head, head of marketing for homedepot.com. When I was arguing for my share of resources along with my peers arguing for their fair share and that sort of thing, we had to demonstrate the ability of the digital dollars to drive traffic in the store and sales in the store. And I think that dynamic exists here in grocery and not just here at Brookshire's, but more generally, most, I don't see a future during my you know remaining years on this earth uh, where uh, grocery is primarily an e-commerce business. I think there's still too many things where you want to pick and choose. You want to, you want to touch that peach. You want to squeeze that, see that watermelon. You want to, see what cut of meat is there, that sort of thing. So the website is an enabler and information provider uh, for the grocery store, just like it was at, in home improvement. So in that regard, it's actually very similar. And so when we look at our investments from a marketing perspective, we have to think about holistically, what is the end-to-end -end journey of that customer, both interacting with the store and the website and make our investment decisions accordingly. That's good. That's great. And have you seen the pandemic affect consumer behavior and in, in, in specifically where you guys are geographically? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a couple of things and, and we being a regional grocer, we actually can compare notes with other regional grocers, which is great because my prior retail experience has been with national retailers and, you know, you kind of keep things close to the vest. Uh, it's hard to get insights from your peer set, but here we can compare notes with non-competitive grocers across the country. Um, obviously when um, COVID hit our sales overnight, as you know, quadrupled, quintupled, you know, we were not prepared for that. One of the, the favorite sayings I've heard, you know, pre and post COVID is what, what COVID did is accelerated processes that are already underway, trends that are already underway, just, you know, compressed 
you know, five years into five months or whatever, yeah. whatever analogy you want to use. Yeah. And so um, our volume spikes, you know, operationally, we were not prepared for it. Uh, it's, it was just very hard because we we're on this nice little trend of growth in e-commerce, you know, experiments, things like that, whatever. And all of a sudden you get an influx of people who are desperate for toilet paper and they will go to anywhere, a lot of different places to find, you know, those basics that you kind of take for granted before COVID hit. So yeah. I think what that also um, accelerated our thinking in that regard. One of the reasons I, I came here, I started here in June. So I started, you know, a couple months after COVID hit is the accelerate, accelerated uh, pace of our digital business. Uh, I was I was fortunate when I joined the Home Depot. We were kind of working on the way to ground floor, didn't know at the time, but we, we really started exploding in terms of the digital business and the influence of digital on the brick and mortar sales. And, you know, I guess it goes back a little bit further in my career, but I worked at JCPenney back in the day when, you know, they were doing a little bit better business-wise than they are today. Um, I joined... Um, relatively soon after e-commerce started to become a thing. And, you know, my last full year there, which was 2007, it was a $1.5 billion e-commerce business. It's actually pretty legit wow. back in the day. So that business has grown from 200 million e-commerce to a billion five during my six years there. You know, my thinking had been at the Home Depot, wow, Home Depot at the time when I started, there was about three times the size of JCPenney. Mm-hmm. I thought, wow, if we can repeat my experience at JCPenney, that'd be awesome. You know, I'm hoping to, that to hit the trifecta, if you will, here at Brookshire's, you know, I've had two great experiences in being part of businesses that were transitioning digital. And that was what attracted me to Brookshire's. Um, and so here I am. That's great. And so so when you think of your collective experience, right? So JCPenney, Home Depot, Brookshire's, and just the, the explosion of e-commerce and quite frankly, e-commerce not just in grocery but in in general in the growth and and i think we're seeing seeing things accelerate so much faster than what we could anticipate and you know mark and i talk about the glut of brick and mortar um Mm -hmm. how we're we're there's just too many too many too many stores too much choice in your mind and i want to get your opinion on this is brick and mortar still at the center of the experience I'm of the opinion, it's a little bit old school, but I'm of, of the opinion that, that it is. And, you know, once again, I'm old enough to have started my career before the web took off and things like that. So, you know, someone who's, you know, Generation Z or whatever might have a different opinion because they they don't, they didn't live in a time otherwise. But mm-hmm. I do believe the brick and mortar experience is the center of that from an experiential perspective. Now, I know a lot of brick and mortar operations, uh, you know, over time, it become basically commoditized to, you know, stack a high, let it fly type philosophy, just just pack a store with a bunch of stuff, and it will sell. Things are good. And I think that that time has passed. Um, you know, the COVID has kind of uh, accelerated processes in the brick and mortar space too. the reality is the United States has been overstored for forever. Right. I mean, in terms of if you ever see an analysis, I'm sure you have, you know, square foot per person. Yeah. The United States was so far ahead of everywhere, everywhere else in the world, Canada, Europe, Asia. It was just kind of a joke. And it, it seemed inevitable there'd be a reckoning of, sort, of sorts. And, you know, Canada, the Amazons and, and the digital players have maybe exacerbated some of those issues. But mm-hmm. I think if, if the Internet didn't exist, that issue would still exist, if you will. They're just, we're overstored and too many choices and 
you know, customers get overloaded with choice at some point, decide I'm going to just shop two or three places, that's it. And if you're not one of those two or three places and you don't have a good store experience, you know, it's going to be bad news at some point in time. So yeah. I, I just, you know, I think about, once again, this is pre-COVID, take it for what's worth. You got the Home Depot, for example, this is public information. Half the e-commerce orders were actually picked up in the store. Wow. You know, customers chose to go to the store. They could have had shipped to the home. Now, maybe they were in an apartment or worried about security or whatever, but customers chose, they were not forced, they were chose to go pick up the items in the store. So I see many customers going with their feet that they do, if they feel safe, if it's a good experience, they do like going into the store. You don't get that experience, you don't get that excitement when you get the box on your front door. It, it, you know, it kind of commoditizes the, commoditizes the whole experience, if you will, and I think the brick and mortar experience done well is still going to be a center of attention, if you will. Yeah, I would agree. And, and so I asked this question to a lot of the executives that we interview on, on Digital Grocer. You know, if you were to look at your crystal ball, what gets you excited about the future of grocery e-commerce? Well, I think um, for this is going to sound derogatory, it's not meant, but, but grocery as a vertical is behind other retail verticals from a digital perspective yeah. for, for a lot of legitimate reasons. It's not because the grocery industry is backwards or, you know, whatever. It's just that it hasn't been as necessary to move in a digital as aggressively for a lot of good reasons. You know, once again, I, I don't, I want to pick my fruit at the store instead. Right. You know, that's me, sample size of one, but I think what's exciting, though, is that also means there's a ton of opportunity to make a digital experience tied to the store experience and do it very, very well from from a glass half full perspective. If, if grocery was at the epitome of digital e-commerce store intersection experiences, well, OK, it, it'd be interesting and fun, but a lot less interesting and fun than what it is today, because we're all kind of trying to learn what's relevant from other retail verticals, what's not relevant, because there are some things that are not relevant. And how do we apply it to grocery? You know, one of the things that we've seen change, um, you mentioned was changed since, since COVID, is, um, you know, from a stereotype perspective, it's always the younger generation that's ordering e-commerce and that sort of thing. Well, guess what? When COVID hit, especially if you had a pre-existing uh, pre, uh, condition health-wise, and you're older and not not concerned about COVID, well, guess what? That customer's experimenting too. It's, it's unfortunate that the circumstances have forced them to do that, if you will, but they like it too. And I think the whole generational thing that maybe existed before may disappear because of that. And a lot, we get the customer service area, Brookshire's reports up to within the marketing team here. So we get the feedback all the time. You would you'd be shocked about how many letters we receive say you're lifesavers and they really mean wow. that wow it's it's not it's not like oh you 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 saved me a dollar on my purchase that you're a lifesaver right. no this they literally feel that we're we're making them safer uh, and it's it's kind of daunting a way you know yeah. it, you know, people got to eat but it, it's still uh you realize you put yourself in certain situations and, you know, part of it's still going to be convenience. You still have the 
parent with three kids in the back of the minivan yeah. who probably don't want to drag them to the grocery store. That's always going to exist. Right. Um, you got the, the group of customers who are going to use delivery like Instacart, whatever, that sort of thing. But then you have some customers who you actually, we actually may be helping them live their life more safely. That's, that's, that's very daunting. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Abbott, CMO at Berkshires. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And Mark, how do people get a hold of us? Yeah, very easy. Uh, digitalgrocer.com. Uh, you can access this episode and all the previous ones and others to come. Fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, keep your ear to the ground. I always wanted to say that on a, on a show. Sorry. <laughs> it makes no sense just, saying that. But don't get run over. Just don't. Yes. And stay away from the train tracks, folks. That's right. That's but right. keep it, keep an eye out for our next episode. I think it will be episode five. We haven't picked a subject yet, but I'm sure it'll be something riveting. Peace out. Peace <laughs> out.